Hello, and welcome back to From My Mom's Basement. I'm your host, David Chamberlain, and this is episode 29 of the podcast, titled Sitting at the Metal Detectors. Thank you all for listening. So this will be a little different from what I normally publish on here. It's more or less nonfiction, I think. The only things I have altered are people's names and their exact origins. Nothing else has been fabricated or embellished. I promise, really. Okay, let me start by talking about the job itself. I worked as a security guard at this big warehouse near the Salt Lake International Airport. I worked graveyards. The warehouse itself was a 200-yard-long rectangular prism made of concrete and sheet metal. It was filled with shelves chock-full of proprietary computer components, all shipped over from our friends in China, and was lit by motion-sensing fluorescence that had a tendency to switch on when no one was present. Kind of freaky. Unfortunately, that was about the creepiest thing that happened during my tenure working graves. I wanted to see a ghost or something. That was half the reason I signed up to work the graveyard shift. But, alas, I witnessed no such paranormal activity. Anyway, it was my job to make sure nothing suspicious happened throughout the night. You know, make sure no one was breaking in to steal priceless computer equipment and whatnot. So, basically, there were three posts you could man on the graveyard shift. The West Shack, the Metal Detectors, and the East Shack. And once you were assigned a post, you were stuck there for 12 hours, buddy. So, getting your post assignment was kind of like receiving final judgment before the bar of God. You can bet people started to learn which posts were sufficiently comfortable and which were, well, less desirable. The shacks were, at face value, not where you wanted to be. They were little four-foot by seven-foot cubes that smelled like cigarettes and sweat. In the winter, they were annoyingly cold. Not actually cold, but like five degrees too cold. Like sitting in a bath that's just starting to cool off kind of cold. And in the summer, they were pretty hot and fragrant and collected mosquitoes like a stagnant pond. You also had to walkie someone if you wanted to use the bathroom. Very annoying. However, the East Shack was somewhat coveted because no semi-trucks came through that side of the warehouse, meaning you could sit around unsupervised and do literally nothing for like 12 hours. I know guys who set up their Xbox in there or else had late-night rendezvous with their girlfriends. I'm serious. I myself was able to snag an hour or so of sleep out there on occasion. I'd curl up on the metal floor, prop my feet up on the heater, use my backpack as a pillow, and catch a few Zs. I wasn't a very good security guard. It was kind of a cool place, the East Shack. It sat on, as you can imagine, the east side of the warehouse and butted up against a chain-link fence, beyond which was nothing but an open plain which spanned all the way to the Salt Lake Airport. I'd watch silhouettes of little mammals run around in the dark, And sometimes I'd hear owls hoot so perfectly, they sounded like Halloween recordings. And, of course, there was the fun pastime of watching airliners tear into the sky like every three minutes. So the East Shack had its perks. The West Guard Shack, however, did not. The West Shack was a dreaded place. It gives me a sick feeling in my stomach just thinking about it. It was a microcosm for everything wrong with the world. See, it was here that you actually had to work. And you had to work all night. Your biggest responsibility was checking in semi-truck drivers. Big, angry, tired men who were annoyed at existence itself. And they always had problems, the truck drivers. They either didn't have a proper LD number, or they didn't have the right appointment time, or they didn't have a bill of lading altogether. 
and these problems were almost always intensified by a language barrier and a throbbing diesel engine that made it impossible to hear anything that was being said. And you had to deal with this nonsense all gosh dang night. Sometimes it'd be snowing. The West Guard Shack was where dreams went to die. People got crafty trying to avoid that place. They'd show up 15 minutes late just so someone else would be assigned there. Some people claimed they couldn't read. Others said it would trigger their anxiety to be posted out there. Which, like, yeah, it was pretty triggering, but they weren't alone in that experience. And some guards just straight up refused to go out there. So, eventually, the only people who manned the West Shack were the people who wouldn't make a fuss about it. Guess who that was? So, anyway, if the West Guard Shack was hell, and the East Guard Shack was something like purgatory, then the metal detectors would have been sweet, sweet paradise. There, at the metal detectors, you got to sit comfortably in a well-air-conditioned warehouse, no more than five feet from the restrooms and less than ten yards from the break room, where vending machines sat full of caffeine and sugary delights. Power outlets were in abundant supply, ready for all of your electronic needs, and you didn't have to deal with a single truck driver all stinking night. It was beautiful. That's where the magic happened. And that's where I really got to know the people I worked with. You see, two people had to man the metal detectors at all times, meaning you had to sit with someone for a good 12 hours straight. You get to know people pretty well that way. I actually really enjoyed it. I loved learning about them, discovering their idiosyncrasies, the joys, and the sorrows of their life. It really kind of makes you love people doing that. And I don't mean love people individually, but love people communally, as a species. We're all very weird, you know? We're strange and lovely and afraid and downright stupid. But sometimes we can be very gentle and very kind. Like, kind and gentle for no reason at all. It's sort of amazing. And if you talk to people for 12 hours on end, especially when you start to get loopy around 3 or 4 in the morning, you learn that we all want the same things, more or less. And I know I'm not saying anything you don't already know. We all want love and peace and yada yada yada. You know, all the cliché stuff. But as I get older, I'm realizing it's this cliché stuff that really seems to be the only stuff that matters. Anyway, I'd like to talk to you now about who I worked with at this odd place in this odd juncture in my life, and maybe, if I can describe them to you with enough accuracy, I can make you love them the same way I love them. Not for any remarkable attributes or achievements, and not because they were even that pleasant or fun to be around but because they were all so desperately doggone human. So why don't we start with Ben? Ben was a skinny, handsome dude from West Virginia who spoke with a subtle southern accent and said things like, Hey, I appreciate you. And, for the simple fact that... One of my favorite phrases of his was, Oh, you got to. For example, I'd come back from the break room with some Red Bull and say something like, I just needed a quick pick-me-up and he'd reply by saying, oh, you got to. I like this phrase so much I've tried to appropriate it myself. Although only like three years older than me, Ben had something like four kids, one of whom was approaching his teens. He worked like a mad dog to support them. I'd never seen anything like it. But he never seemed aggravated or upset about it. In fact, just the opposite. He was really kind of fired up about life in general. Which is sort of amazing, given the circumstances of his life. The fact that he was 26 with four kids, one of whom was mentally challenged and didn't have teeth, or like his teeth were all funky, like they didn't grow in all the way for some reason. 
a low-income job, and no real education or prospects whatsoever. This is how it always seems to go, though. Those with the greatest reasons to complain seem to be the least liable to do so. Someone explained that phenomenon to me. He always asked people about themselves, what they did, what they wanted, and then he'd literally try to build a plan with them on how they could achieve those wants and desires. He was very inspiring that way. He especially liked to talk to me about financial literacy and encouraged me to save up some cash and then to travel, as traveling would help ignite my artistic creativity. Before he quit, Ben's wife became very sick, the kind of sick that kills you really quickly. He told me he was afraid his kids would grow up without a mom. He quit shortly thereafter. Based on what he told me, I'm like 85% sure his wife is dead now. Brinley was a transgender woman who was about my age. We went through training together. She had one of those half-buzzed type hairdos and liked to read really high-level literature. Some of the books she brought in were The Picture of Dorian Gray, A Tale of Two Cities, Ivanhoe, and Les Mis. I got along with her pretty well simply because we had mutual interests. We talked about films and books, and one night we threw paper airplanes across the warehouse for a good three hours. Like I said, I wasn't a great security guard. She was quiet and didn't really say anything unless it was absolutely necessary, which was nice. Two months into working together, she changed to the day shift, and I never saw her again. Okay, so Dale was this really short guy from Arizona who only stayed at the site for like a month and a half. He was so profoundly ugly that I thought he might have been the victim of some kind of birth defect or developmental aberration. But really, he was probably one of the smartest guys I worked with. Very normal, too. Well, no, he wasn't normal, but his mental acuity was very normal, if that makes sense. So get this, Dale moved up to Salt Lake to get a job while his wife and kids remained in Arizona. It was his aim to get settled, and then, once he was established, move his family up to Salt Lake where they would start a new life. Well, like three weeks into his time in Salt Lake, his wife served him divorce papers. So, in the time I knew him, he was scrambling to find an attorney so he could turn tail back to Arizona to fight for custody of his children. Beyond all of this, Dale spoke a lot about the Mormon church and how, if it weren't for the fact that he loved to sin, he would be a practicing Mormon. This was why he wanted to move to Salt Lake, to try and straighten himself out, to get away from the bad circles he ran in. He said it was pretty common for him to go south of the border, into Juarez, Mexico, I am not making this up, and solicit sex from any number of prostitutes. Having served a Spanish-speaking LDS mission, he could navigate the turbulent streets of that Mexican border town with confidence. He said his imminent divorce was a divine punishment for not living a stand-up life, for living in sin. I just thought it was remarkable he was married in the first place on account of his just ridiculous hideousness. Interesting little anecdote about Dale's upbringing. I guess his dad was a Mormon bishop who went a little bonkers back in the mid-80s. He tried to convince his congregation that polygamy was A-OK, and I guess he was pretty successful because Dale had something like, and again, I'm not making this up, 17 siblings. I guess his father was able to convince something like half a dozen young women to have his children. Anyway, as a result, Dale didn't know his dad very well at all. There were some obstacles in their relationship, as you could imagine. But many of his older siblings, those who grew up before their father began impregnating everyone, were very successful professionals in their mid to late 50s. Meanwhile, Dale was a 30-year-old dude working a security job. Now, Alec was a younger guy, 
probably two or three years younger than me, and had shoddy eyes. His corneas weren't fully developed, I guess. So he was essentially utterly blind. All he could see were basic shapes and colors. How he got a security gig whose main tenets were observe and report sure beats the hell out of me. He had black curly hair that was always tucked under a beanie and wore glasses with lenses as thick as portholes on a cruise ship. He told me he wanted to be a CNA, which I thought was kind of like saying you wanted to be a ditch digger or a garbage man, but he was very serious. He told me he enjoyed taking care of people in that capacity, i.e. wiping butts and cleaning up vomit. He's proof that angels really do walk amongst us. He always brought a Harry Potter book to work and read the print by way of a magnifying glass that looked like the hemisphere of a crystal ball. He was a nice enough guy but had a very strange way of speaking. It was as though someone were feeding him random words to say through an earpiece. He never made any kind of sense. All of his utterances were missing very crucial things like nouns or verbs or any sliver of context whatsoever. But again, he was a very nice guy. Now, Dalton was a giant dude. He had a head like a mini-fridge and made the West Shack smell like the sulfuric hell it was. I'd have to leave the doors open for a few hours just to air his stink out. He smelled like sour B.O. and fast food, more specifically Taco Bell. Very fragrant, very vibrant. And he was an ornery dude, but he loved me, like he really thought I was a swell guy. He talked to me about everything. Video games, Donald Trump, internet conspiracies, etc. He was one of those guys whose life revolved around nothing but digital entertainment. YouTube, podcasts, you name it. Nothing else mattered. He was the kind of dude who could fart loudly right in front of you and act like it was your problem if you were disturbed. I'm not saying he did do this. I'm just saying he's the kind of person who could. He had some truly tremendous haunches, too. I'm talking a caboose like the back end of a Chrysler LeBaron. He was always shuffling around sideways so as not to bring his full frame to bear on things. Talking to him in the guard shack was like being stuck in an elevator with a smelly Andre the Giant. Many chairs were found broken at the end of his shifts. He also had this weird habit of referring to his dad as Pops. Not my Pops, just Pops. Like, for example, he'd say, Yeah, Pops is coming into town tomorrow as if we shared the same father. It wouldn't have been so strange if it weren't for the fact that he said this a lot. Pops this, pops that, all night long. His brother killed himself while I worked with him. Pops was very upset, he said. Pops didn't have money for a proper funeral, he said. Alexis was a small girl from a small town who wore her rural sensibilities like a badge of honor. You know the type. She colloquially referred to the Middle East as the sandbox. As in, did you hear about Carl? He got sent off to the sandbox again. And she constantly toked from a purple iridescent vape mod with some deliciously vile flavors like bubblegum, black licorice, and starburst. Her cheeks were pierced with these dull-colored studs that were just like augered directly into her skin, which I constantly confused for acne or else boogers. She spoke as if she were keyed into everything on a higher level, as if she knew some secret that you didn't. Really, though, I think this was some kind of defense mechanism she used to hide her own ineptitude. For example, she said she dropped out of high school because it was a scam, because she was smarter than her teachers. Yeah, right, Alexis. Yeah, right. 
She also claimed in her down-home, small-town, salt-of-the-earth, country-living way that she knew all there was to know about the internal combustion engine. So, one cold January morning, when my car wouldn't start, I asked her if she could help deduce why it wasn't turning over. Partly, I'll admit, because I wanted to call her bluff, but mostly because I wanted my car to start. As she looked over the engine, it was clear she had no clue what any of it meant. And, furthermore, when I asked her to help jump the car, she refused to touch the jumper cables because she thought she would get electrocuted. I'm serious. But once the car was running and a diagnosis was no longer actually needed, she was eager to give me all kinds of sage mechanical advice, such as, make sure you're not riding the clutch, and don't forget to change your oil. Thanks a lot, Alexis. And look, it was nice of her to try and help me start my car at all. I don't want to sound ungrateful. I just really didn't like Alexis very much. I think it was because, out of all the people I worked with, she was the only one living out a lie, pretending to be someone she wasn't. Then there was Ellis. He was my boss, and he was pretty cool. He was super quiet and had a slow-moving but deliberate quality, kind of like a sloth, but with a certain added intensity. He had thick, dark hair, which he wore in a high and tight hairstyle, a la Brad Pitt and Fury. And he wasn't condescending or rude, as bosses so often tend to be. He generally just left me alone, which was fine by me. He did have some interesting habits, though. Habits just peculiar enough to be considered off-putting instead of endearing. Like, he carried around a green canvas tote bag full of manga. That's Japanese comic books for the uninitiated, nearly incomprehensible graphic novels inundated with half-naked women. Which isn't super weird by itself, I guess, but imagine stepping into your blue-collar job where you're surrounded by grisly men with tired faces, and your boss, a fully grown man himself, is standing there amongst them, holding a collection of glitteringly pink comic books, covered with images of small-framed, scantily-clad women with enormous boobs. It's... A little bit strange. Side note, there was someone else I worked with named Jacob, a guy I don't have time to speak about in this history, who had a similar proclivity for manga, and who was very happy to show me a cushioned mouse pad he had purchased from Amazon, whose main feature were two domed gel cushions, which served as walloping 3D bosoms for an anime woman whose image was embossed on said mouse pad. People are strange. Anyway, Beyond Ellis's bizarre habit of carrying around about three dozen manga books everywhere he went, he also liked to listen to some of the worst music imaginable. And I'm not talking about bad artists or bad genres, I'm pretty open to most music. I'm talking about weird, spoof-type parody music. Think Weird Al Yankovic songs made by people with less talent and whose audience is exclusively on YouTube and Reddit. I remember him really enjoying one song titled Nerd Rage a song which chronicled a nerd who, after experiencing some kind of nerdy catastrophe, falls into what he self-describes as a nerd rage. The chorus of the song went something like, Nerd rage, nerd rage, I got that nerd rage, I got that nerd rage, and so on. A cartoon music video accompanied this song, and Ellis would so generously prop up his phone so we could both watch the video, while Nerd Rage blared over a Bluetooth speaker and echoed across the concrete flooring of the warehouse. He played the song on repeat. But even with all his eccentricities, he was true to himself. He was a 35-year-old man who liked manga and listening to Nerd Rage, 
and didn't really care what anyone else had to say about it. I respect him mightily for that. Now, Eric was probably one of the sweetest, most entertaining, most talkative, most interesting men I worked with. He had, as he openly told me every single time I worked with him, a mental disorder known as bipolar 1. Not bipolar 2, but 1. He was very adamant on my understanding that differentiation. He was in his early 60s and had cloudy white hair which he parted straight down the middle. He was kind of small, anatomically speaking, personality-wise he was a giant, and was constantly talking. Whether he was alone or not, he was talking. His facial muscles seemed to be in constant action. If he ever did ask you a question, which was rare, he'd pause so you might say maybe one or two words and then resume speaking again. He wasn't interested in your answer so much as he was in seeing you were actively listening to his monologue. Eric was, and I'm not just blowing smoke up your butt here, a truly remarkable artist. He painted portraits of animals, dogs mostly, and was damned good. He told me that it was his mental disorder, his bipolar 1, which provided him with his creative capacity. Now, I think it's pretty dangerous to believe in the old stereotype that great art is only made by mentally ill individuals, but Eric was a big proponent of that theory. In fact, he kind of almost worshipped his mental illness like it was beautifying, or else his one defining trait. He was a wacky guy, like he thought everyone at a certain burger restaurant, specifically one in northern Utah, had it out for him, and that whenever he entered said burger establishment, everyone would stop eating, put their burgers down, and stare at him as if he were some outsider walking into an Old West saloon. Oftentimes, he would ask me, Have you ever noticed that people just don't like you? And they don't even know you? How can you not like someone you don't even know? How can you do that? He'd get real riled up when he got on this subject, and would ask the question with all kinds of quick, explosive hand motions. He specifically liked to point at you with his thumb and forefinger extended in a kind of sideways L shape. He wore a lot of rings and was from somewhere on the west coast, like Seattle, and was desperate to get back there. His wife, however, wanted to stay in Utah. Again, how any of these guys had wives really does both astound and delight me. Eric also said his son was my age but had a lot of mental problems, like mental problems that put him in the hospital. He told me his son was suicidal with a certain kind of disdain as if he might roll his eyes when he said it. He said he couldn't understand why anyone would want to kill themselves. He said that even with his mental illness, he never once thought of hurting himself. I just nodded. I mean, what do you say to that? It's like, okay, Eric, you never wanted to kill yourself, but you did tell me that when you were 28, you couldn't drive for the space of four months because you thought a man was hiding explosives inside your engine block. So maybe you should have some sympathy for altered states of mind. Anyway, Eric was someone who was filled with a lot of regret. He talked about his past often. And not just like five years ago or ten years ago, but like all the way back to high school. I specifically remember him telling me one story about his junior prom. I guess he went with a girl he didn't even like that much, and who wasn't even particularly interested in him either. So he's at the prom, which I imagine would have been in some old high school gymnasium, with glowing white circles of disco ball light rotating around the bleachers, standing on the side of the dance floor because his date wants nothing to do with him and a tall girl from the track team asks him for a dance because, you know, no one is dancing with him. 
It was at this part of the story that Eric got really angry, curled his hands into fists, turned towards me, and shook his head. I told her no, he said. I said I couldn't dance with her because I was with someone else. Can you believe that? And she was cute, too. I probably liked her more than my own date. Why did I say no? We could have been married, you know? You never know what those kinds of things. Yeah, those are the kinds of things that keep a young man up at night, seeing an old man who's still torn up about his high school prom. It's really pretty disturbing. We're all still kids, it seems, no matter how many years you have under your belt. Last word about Eric. He brought me a cold can of Coca-Cola every time we work together, and I love him for that. Okay, I'm going to finish this up with a guy named Patrick. Patrick was from rural Pennsylvania and was a rabid Philadelphia Eagles fan. He wore a baseball cap with their emblem every day and had a great, thick, salt-and-pepper mustache. He also had a kind of eastern accent that was hard to place but which sounded kind of like Billy Crystal somehow. He was pretty old, maybe mid-50s, and sold custom-made jacuzzi-brand bathtubs in the middle United States from about 2008 to like 2018. This was a vocation he was really proud of, it seemed. I guess it took a lot of ingenuity and smooth talking to sell a $10,000 jacuzzi to someone in Des Moines. Oh, and he was in the U.S. Navy during the height of our world supremacy, right there towards the end of the Cold War. I guess really all he had to worry about was maintaining the empire, i.e. sail from port to port to port all over Asia. He said Australian women were just mad about American sailors. Supposedly, according to him, they had a calendar that enumerated exactly when an American ship was due in port and would be waiting for the sailors on the docks like groupies outside a concert venue. I guess he and his wife had been married happily for something like 30 years, a real Norman Rockwell fantasy, except Patrick was a jacuzzi salesman instead of a milkman or something. Anyway, at some point in the latter years of their marriage, his wife began having problems with her reproductive organs. They started growing things, or something, like little malignant nodules sprouted all over her fallopian piping, and as a result, she had to have all of her lady parts scooped out like bristles of an artichoke heart. I believe the procedure is called a hysterectomy. After her hysterectomy, like literally the day after the procedure, she asked Patrick for a divorce. He said, and these were his exact words, whatever woman loved me before the surgery had disappeared. He said she was a completely different woman post-op. He said they would still be happily married if not for her hysterectomy. My thought was, no, you wouldn't still be married, she would be dead. But at any rate, it was an interesting little anecdote, I thought. Anyway, I guess he was struggling for money, Patrick, and was really hankering for a job in sales. Sales was where he thrived, he said. So I, kind of half-jokingly, suggested he see if Vivint were hiring. Vivint, for those of you who are unfamiliar, is a kind of notorious home security company who employs legions of insufferable young men out of their headquarters in Orem, Utah. The connotation of most Vivint employees isn't great. Their reputation at least amongst my peers, is very dismal. Patrick was the last person I thought would actually want to work for Vivint, but he'd never heard of the company, I guess. And when I suggested he go knock on their door in search of employment, his eyes widened with hope, and he asked, How do you spell that? V-I-V-I-N-T, I said. 
He urgently scribbled the name down on the back of an envelope, his eyes full of desperation, as if that were his last hope, his last lifeline out of that place. That made me profoundly sad, like sad on a level that I don't know how to reconcile. I just remember thinking, that is not where I want to be at his age. That is not where I want to be. And yet, I was already there, with him. I was sitting right next to him, at the metal detectors. See, the whole time I worked that security job, I felt like I was above it. Like it was a temporary low point in what would prove to be an otherwise very successful life. I thought that, unlike my co-workers, I actually had a future, a vision, an ambition. And while I do have those things, so did everyone else. We all told ourselves the same things. We're better than this job. We're smarter than our peers. And it will only be a matter of time before we rocket out of here and land a job more suitable for our exceptional abilities. We told ourselves the same great lie. Our brilliance was going unappreciated and that a menial, low-skilled, low-paying job wasn't what we were suited for. We were trying to shield ourselves from the most terrifying, pants-soiling, ego-destroying fact that we were actually exactly where we were supposed to be, that we belonged nowhere else but in a low-paying, underskilled job. None of us wanted to be there, except for maybe Ellis. We all had plans and escape routes, little dreams that we were nurturing and manicuring and preparing to make manifest. Whether it was going back to school or getting a job at Vivint or moving to Los Angeles, we all thought we were one step away from making it big. I don't think anyone really expected to be working that job at that place at that time in their lives. A lot of us were kind of sad and tired and coped with it in strange but very human ways. All of this to say, even though we were all extremely different, we were really all the same. We were all more like each other than we realized, than we wanted to realize. We were all each other. We were all human. And we were all trying, desperately, to make something of ourselves. Thank you all for listening. That was episode 29, titled Sitting at the Metal Detectors. This episode was written, edited, produced, and narrated by myself, with the music being by Kevin McLeod. Thank you all again for listening. Thank you.